0: Um, let's go on. Let's move on into God's word. Let's look at second Peter. We're going to be in second Peter chapter one. We'll be in verses one and two today. The letter of second Peter was written by Peter, uh, shortly after the letter of first Peter, it was written to the same audience of the churches at Asia minor. That was the same audience that the letter of first Peter was written. Second Peter, unlike first Peter, is a, addressing a report of false teaching amongst the congregation. And Peter is writing this letter to inform the church, the churches, how to handle when false teachers arise in the congregation. And we'll get into that in depth over time. I want to take a look at his greeting, though, today to sort of see um, Peter sets a really good foundation for how to overcome false teachers, how to live in, in faith. The first letter, Peter discussed the possibility and chances of persecution and suffering. In his second letter, he discusses the possibility of division amongst the body. And the answer for division is always Christ. The answer for division is always to grow in grace and peace through the knowledge of Jesus. The answer for division is not quick-witted retorts or uh, social media posts. The answer for division is not um, more division, more separation. And sometimes the answer for division is agree to disagree, But that is when all other resources have been exhausted. The answer for division is, as uh, Peter lays out for us today, is to grow in the grace and peace in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of knowledge is so important to Peter. As a matter of fact, 2 Peter is three chapters. And in that three chapter, in those three chapters, he uses the word or a similar word for knowledge, 15 times. So in this small letter, he really focuses on the idea of knowledge. Peter's theme in Second Peter then is to fight off the attack of false teachers by knowing the word of God and using the word of God. You use the word of God as a means to attack or to counter clever words and clever actions that are used by those whose desire is ultimately to divide and destroy the church. I want you to remember friends, we need to trust in the word of God and trust in Christ because not all division within the church is so blatantly obvious. You must remember that the devil comes as an angel of light. So there will be people and I don't think it will be a problem within our body, maybe sometimes, but there will be people whose life seems full of light. This is why it's sort of a dangerous proposition in our, culture, our current climate to call out false teachers because false teachers seem very full of light. They seem like they have this message from God to bring to us. And so we must be careful not to only assume that division in the church comes from uh, anger and hostility and gossip and all of those things, but we also must be very careful because the devil is clever and he wants to do what he can to destroy us. And the best tactic or the most prominent tactic that he has used throughout time is to take some truth... And couple that with a lie so that it is appealing to those who seek truth. This is why it is absolutely necessary as Peter makes it more clear to us that we must grow in knowledge. Grow in knowledge. Which uh, I hope, I'm sure it wasn't a coincidence. I hope that what happened this morning was that Tony read ahead and he knew what was coming. And so he gave us a charge right away to seek the truth, to seek the pure meat of the word of God and to seek out truth because he set us up uh, very well. And if it was an accident and he didn't read ahead, we don't believe in accidents. We know that the Lord put that in his head this morning. Let's read Second Peter 1 verses 1 and 2. 2 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We see Peter begin this letter, he identifies himself as Simeon. I'm not 100% sure why, because we know him as what? Simon, right? Here's the possibility of why. Simeon was his Semitic name. That would have been his Jewish name. And for some reason, uh, and it is more of a formal name. For some reason, he is choosing here uh, and in one other place to uh, to identify himself in this way it's similar to at the end of first peter how we saw sylvanus sylvanus and also Sylvanus's silas so it wasn't uncommon for people to have multiple names and to be identified by their name but we know it's not problematic we know that this is peter uh, primarily because of the way he identifies himself in a minute he identifies himself as peter a servant And apostle. The word servant actually means slave. He was a slave to the Lord Jesus. He was a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, I have no personal authority. I am not speaking on my own merit or word or anything by anything that I have done, but I am speaking to you as a one, as one who is slave to the power, to the authority, to the message, to the truth of Jesus Christ. May it be said about every person who ever speaks from the pulpit of vintage church that they come to you as a servant to the word, to Christ and to his word. That they can never speak to you or preach to you anything more or anything less than what God has already spoken in his great truth, his great word. Peter's saying, I have no personal authority. Peter never understood doulos, slave or servant in the negative negative sense as it Pertained to Christ. As a matter of fact, when he's calling himself a servant of Christ, he's not saying, I'm a poor servant, I'm in bondage. He's saying, I get to be bound to Christ. I was once bound to the things of the world, but I am am free, and in my freedom I am bound to Christ. He He is celebrating the fact that he is no longer a slave to the things of the world, but he is a slave to Christ. We talked about this last week. Everybody is a worshiper of something. And Peter is saying, my worship has been redirected from self." My worship has been redirected from the things of this world and my worship has been directed to Christ. Doulos, slave, servant. It suggests honor. In the Old Testament, prominent men were called servants of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, David, and more. They were all called servants of God. Paul, James, and Jude are called douloi in the New Testament. They are Servants. Peter is reminding all of his readers of a couple of ideas surrounding their salvation and their ability to be used. One idea that is prominent and prevailing throughout all of Christianity that needs to be in your own mind is the last will be first. He who wishes to be exalted will be humbled. Those who are saved and used by God must be, it must come in a way that is through. Contrition, through humility, through servanthood. Jesus calls himself the great physician and he says, I'm coming to help the sick, the desperate, the needy, not the well. The well don't need a physician. And I can promise you, friends, if you spend the majority of your life thinking that you are living just okay or you're you're getting by, you're, you're okay, uh, you will never experience salvation through Jesus Christ. But if you spend the majority of your life understanding your desperate need for a Savior, even after he redeems us, understanding our desperate need for a Savior, we then can humbly take on all of the precious gifts that he gives us. In order to be saved, we need to see ourselves as servants. I've probably told you this story before, but it's one that sticks out in my head. I was sharing the gospel with a friend many, many years ago, and I've had reactions like this before, but this one was the first person, this person was the first person that was really so blatantly honest with me. But he said, I feel so, he was a Christian, and but you share the gospel with Christians, and And he said, I feel so bad because I came to Jesus because I had nothing else. I came to Jesus because I had nothing else. And I said, brother, I know that you don't realize this right now. But it's the only way. It's the only way that you can find him. It's the only way that you can find him. If you think you have something. If you think you can lose something or that you're truly giving up something. If you think that the, your lifestyle or your, uh, or your money or, or uh, other forms of peace outside of Christ are being lost in order to gain him, you will never gain him. One of the reasons that it's, I believe, hardest to become a believer in the Western world than it's ever been and maybe than it is in other parts of the country is because we have everything to lose when we come to Christ. We have everything to lose from a worldly sense when we come to Christ. It's only when you see Christ as worthy of everything that you have and all that you have that you can truly follow him. And the fact is, you might look at this and say, man, I I feel this for non-Christians, but friends, Christians get caught in the same trap. Christians get caught in the same trap of thinking Jesus is everything, but so are these things too. These things are pretty, pretty great also. So there is this constant back and forth that needs to happen in the mind of every believer. I am not worthy. Christ is all I have. I have everything In Christ, I am not worthy. I can't believe He saved me. But in Christ, I have all that I need. And He did save me. So Peter says that He is a slave. Peter not only says He is a slave or a servant to Christ as Lord, but also He is an apostle. He is speaking here specifically of his appointed position of the, of the first 12. Those first apostles had authority and people need to be reminded of what the Lord has done through those apostles. As a matter of fact, uh, apostolic authority of those first apostles um, pretty much shaped all of Christianity from that point to now with what we have in the Bible, with what we believe, with what they follow, what books were used, what, what sources were understood. So Peter is not saying, I'm just Peter the sinner, I'm just Peter the slave, I'm some random Peter. He's saying, I'm Peter the apostle. And that is the authority he is writing to the church. And, and it's important because some of the things he's going to say... If we take that apostolic authority as important, we will need to take more seriously some of the things Peter is going to say and most of the things Peter is going to say in 2 Peter. So Peter, the servant of Jesus, is writing with the authority of of an apostle to a church that is threatened by false teachers. Today our verses encourage them Today our verses encourage them to go on in their faith, to to um, to set the foundation for being able to see um, false teaching, to be able to understand false teaching, to be able to call out false teaching, and be able to eliminate it. I want to I want to give you three ideas that Peter gives us today, setting a foundation for a strong church for a for a church who is growing in the knowledge of Christ, a church who is living in a proper understanding of the gospel. And the first thing Peter points out, and I think it's super important that you understand this, it's probably something that you've heard at least a half a dozen to one million times, but it's important, and if you have heard it, just have peace or patience for the people who might not have heard it in the same way. But Peter mentions, he shows the the churches at Asia Minor first, the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think this is very important. I'm going to remind you, to many of you, it's something that, You've already heard before. Peter is informing his readers of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And if we understand the Bible at all, if we understand the importance of that, we will hold to this truth. Supremacy means having the highest rank or authority, having the highest degree or, or quality. As Christians, we absolutely believe in one God and his absolute authority and we believe that God has three separate and distinct beings but is also the same God is the fa- God the Father is supreme in all things and he is the one true God but Peter is now also telling us that Jesus is supreme in all things but the one true God Peter says Jesus is God Jesus is Lord jesus is supreme how do we know this he says he my god and savior jesus christ peter is claiming the godhood of jesus and therefore giving him equal footing to the father we understand this in our in our terms as the trinity okay The Trinity is not mentioned by name in the Bible, but neither is using meth, and we know we don't use meth, right? There are plenty of things that are not mentioned in the Bible that we have enough truth and enough evidence to follow, and the Trinity, even though it's not mentioned by name, is one of those things. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God, the three in one. He is three beings, different in behavior and function, but at the same time, he is one from the beginning. I think the best way to understand the Trinity is this, and I'm not gonna give you some illustration because they all fall short other than the illustration that God has given us. Jesus and the Father are both God along with the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Spirit are God are the father revealing himself in real ways to human people. Now, while the the spirit and Jesus were at creation, it has always been the father's plan to reveal to humans these parts of himself. One, the redeeming part through the man, the god-man Jesus Christ, and two, The power and thrust of our salvation through the Spirit of God. There is no adequate way to describe the Trinity because it is a spiritual, it is a supernatural thing. There are no human words to describe or illustrate. You can't illustrate it with water, you can't illustrate it with a flower, you can't illustrate it with anything other than the fact that it is God's truth, it is God's word and peter here confirms that jesus is on equal footing with the father therefore if the father is worshipped in a certain way the son is worshipped in a certain way if the father and son are worshipped in a certain way the spirit is worshipped in a certain way i'm not going to exhaust all of the questions you may have on the trinity if you have a question write it down and trouble your MC leader with that, that may be me. So we'll see. But the main idea here is that Jesus is God. He is supreme. He is in first position. Hebrews uh, uh, Hebrews eight tells us that Jesus is better than the Old Testament ordinances, the types and signs. He is the fulfillment of those things. There were countless prophets. There were many kings. There were many priests. But Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is the first and he is the last. Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 1 says that all things were created for him and by him, which make all things under him. Colossians 1 goes on to say that in all things he may have preeminence. That is pre-existing first authority over all things. What does the supremacy of Christ mean for us? While I'm not going to be able to explain it in this sermon all uh, all the details about the trinity and all about the supremacy of Christ. I think we can take some truths from it and and apply them to our life number one his supremacy tells us because these are application application i don't usually put these up here you can put these in your own words if you want to or you cannot write them down i want to leave something on you to have to write down his supremacy tells us that he is god and he is not many ways but he is the way he is god and he is not one of many ways but he is the way Jesus was not a moral, just a moral man. He was not just a moral teacher. He was not just a prophet. He was the prophet of all prophets. He was the priest that offered the sacrifice of all sacrifice. He is the king that now reigns in authority now and forever with the God. With God. One God together. His supremacy tells us that he is God and he is one way and not many ways. Often John 14, 6 is quoted here where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. You know, it's interesting, and you can research this if you want to, but almost every prevailing religion points to Jesus as at least a good man. Almost every prevailing religion points back to Jesus. But do you know who Jesus points back to? He doesn't point back to Buddha or he doesn't point back to Muhammad. He doesn't point back to Joseph Smith or anybody like that. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. See, what all false religions know is that Jesus is supreme. And so even in their, even in their uh, distortion of truth, they point back to Jesus as supreme. But what we know and what Christ knows is that he is supreme. So there is no necessity to point to any other religion as having authority, as having goodness, or as having any uh, pertinent uh, place in our life. He is supreme. He is the way. He's not one of many. He was not just a good moral teacher, but he is God. His supremacy lets us know that he is outside of creation. He is before it. He is preeminent over creation. He is above it. (coughs) Which makes Jesus the only one able to atone for sins here's why God had to become man man had to pay for his own sins but man is a sinner and cannot save himself God is the only one that is outside of creation that has created everything that is in control of everything that can shape and maneuver all that is matter and all that is creation So God, in order for sins to be atoned, God had to step out of heaven and into creation as man in order to redeem mankind. So man saved man, but it was not any man, it was the God man. It was the God who was outside of creation, who was preeminent, who was before it, who preexisted it. Who became man so that he could atone for our sins? His supremacy lets us know that he is outside of creation, above it, and he can atone for our sins. You cannot save yourself. You can never be found worthy enough. You can never be found favorable enough in the eyes of God. As a matter of fact, the more you try to earn the favor of God, the further you actually get from Him, even if it feels gushy and spiritual. Ask any Christian who's tried to walk in faith on their own based on works, and they will tell you that it is impossible because the more. You try to walk in faith on your own, those filthy hands, they keep polluting everything that you try to do. Every work, every act, they pollute everything that you try to do. But the God-man who is supreme over all things, who is unpolluted, who is above the reproach of creation, His righteousness, his grace, his goodness can redeem us. His supremacy lets us know that he is outside of creation above it and therefore he can atone for sins. His supremacy lets us know that we cannot be like him in our own strength. He is supreme. He is above us, he is outside of us. We cannot mimic him. We don't have the power, the power, the strength, the ability, the knowledge The time, he is infinite. He is above all things. He is outside of all things. And therefore, if we want to be like him, it has to come through him. Friends, I want you to know, if it hasn't already, the supremacy, the knowledge of the supremacy of Christ will change your mind. It will change your heart about a lot of things because if you don't believe in the supremacy of Christ in this way, you will spend a good portion of your life attempting to be more like God without God. And you know what that does? That just makes you a little G-O-D. It just makes you a little idol. Excuse me, it makes us Because there's no way that I think I'm outside of this. His supremacy lets us know that we cannot be like him on our own strength. His supremacy lets us know that he is worthy of our worship and praise. He alongside the Godhead is worthy of our worship. And only the Godhead. Only the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The three in one. The co-equals. Can I tell you, Mary is not worthy of your prayers. The saints that have gone before are not worthy of your prayers. That may not be a problem for you if you didn't come from a Catholic background, but let me me tell you, you are not worthy of your worship. You are not worthy of your worship. You've done a few things in life, cool. Maybe maybe you're very successful at your job, or maybe you own your own business. Maybe you've reached a certain level of comfort. Maybe you've been a discipler of people. Maybe you've mentored people. Maybe you love people. Maybe you're an active part of this church. But friends, I would caution you, I would caution you to not worship the things that you do and yourself. Like our verses last week, we read, uh, I read from... Second Corinthians, I believe, the church had begun to worship. In some sense, Paul and Apollos. They had began to they began to focus on people. The biggest problem in the churches today is self-worship. And I want to ask you this question: As you feel sorry for yourself when your works go unnoticed, or or when you you praise yourself for how well you've done in life, I want to ask you this question. Did you die for yourself, or or was it Christ? Are, Are you preeminent? Were all things created by your hand? If not, you are not worthy of your own worship. His supremacy lets us know that he is worthy of our worship and praise. He is above all things. He is before all things, and we should worship him with appropriate reverence. The second truth Peter mentions is our position in Christ. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith of equal standing, friends, I want you to know, I want you to know that there is no foundational difference between the men standing up at this pulpit and the people sitting in this audience. That we have been given a faith that is on equal standing. And if you see friends or if you see mentors that are walking in faith, a faith that you desire and a faith that you want, the only difference is that they have surrendered themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you want a faith like theirs, if you want a stronger faith, you might find that you need to eliminate some things that have your lordship or that Lord over you, you might need to do that. You might need to find that you may need to surrender yourself more to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How do I know that we're on equal standing other than the fact that Peter says it? Peter says, we have obtained our faith. The word obtained here is the same word used for casting lots. You know what casting lots is? Casting lots was, we would probably consider it gambling these days. Casting lots was they like literally decided, they were deciding what they wanted and then they would throw some sort of something and whoever won that, won whatever it was they were casting lots for. Do you remember, there are some pretty prominent times they casted lots. They casted lots for Jesus' clothing, right? Uh, They casted lots for Judas. It said it was allotted to Judas. Then they casted lots for Matthias, who was Judas's replacement. Uh, they casted lots for Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He was, lots were casted for him to be in his position, to be able to go and worship as he was. The Bible says that man casts the lots, but it is the Lord that determines the outcome. So it's not a thing of chance or a thing of luck, it is God's sovereignty. But the reason I want to say, um, the reason I wanted to point out about this casting lots here, about our faith and our faith being obtained in this way, is is a is a way to distinguish for us how our faith is coequal. Can I tell you something neat that you've probably heard, but if you haven't, this is going to be sort of revelatory to you. Um, you obtained your faith in the same way that Peter obtained his faith. I have obtained my faith in the same way you have obtained your faith. Therefore, our faith in the sense of its redemptive work and in the sense of what it can do in us to make us more like Christ is all the same. It's all the same. we probably are at different levels. We're probably at different rungs of the ladders. And again, I would say that that's only, that only has to do with our willingness to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We have obtained our faith. Faith is a gift. It is a gift of God. Who gets faith is not necessarily fair, but it was allotted to them by God we have obtained a faith of equal standing our faith is the same as Paul and Peter's we are not the same as the apostles they had different functions they uh, they did things I believe that were a part of that time that don't happen anymore Uh, there are several things that were true of the apostles that are not true of today and we won't talk about those today but I think you know my understanding of that for the most part but all people who have belonged to God ever have been brought to God through the same way and have equal standing. We know this is true finally and sort of as the pinnacle of this truth. We have obtained that faith strictly through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We know we have obtained it in the same way. We know that we, are, we grow and we understand in the same way. And what is that same way? That is by what Jesus has done alone and no other way. Ultimately, Moses obtained his, same, his faith in the same way we have, and that was through the future work of Jesus Christ. David obtained his faith in the same way we have, and that was the future work of Jesus Christ. Paul and Peter and John and James, they obtained their faith in the same way we have, and that was through Jesus Christ. Listen, salvation is not fair. It is never described as fair. Some people live good lives and they never, or they live quote unquote good lives and they never come to Christ. Some people live horrible lives and they come to him at some point. You think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross was mocking Jesus mere moments before he was redeemed. Salvation, that allotment of salvation is never described as fair, but God is good and his righteousness is good and it is equal in the sense that we all have the same ability to follow Christ in the same way. Salvation is never described as fair, but you know how salvation is described? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Unmerited favor. Unearned gifts if salvation is unfair to anyone it would be to God who sent his son to this earth to die for us to pay for our sins to take on our wrath to pay for crimes he did not commit so that we could be saved the guilty could be saved but he has seen fit in his will and his infinite knowledge to give all Christians equal standing and equal ability to walk in faith what does this mean what does this mean There is nothing keeping you from being like the Christian that you most admire. There is nothing preventing you from that. And if you believe that, it's a lie from hell and you must flee from that lie. There is nothing preventing you from that. Another thing it means is there is nothing keeping you from knowing God more and learning more of Him. There is no physical limitation There is no physical limitation. There is no no prescription that a doctor can give you. No diagnosis that a doctor can give you that can prevent you from knowing God more. If you struggle, if you have trouble knowing God like someone who is more educated, who has less mental distractions or whatever, who has a sharper memory, if you struggle, then you have to understand that growth in Christ is supernatural. And if anyone is to grow in Christ, it is to be done by the supernatural power of God. And because growth is supernatural, God can can and will overcome all your limitations to growing in him. If you don't feel like you're as smart as me, that's a dumb statement because I'm not a very smart person. Okay, my GPA in high school was like a 2.1. Okay, I know you lose a lot of respect for me now when I say that out loud. It got better over time, okay, just a little bit. But you're, you're not, I'm not smarter than you. I don't have a better memory than you. Our growth comes from the grace of God. And even if we can't learn all the biblical facts of of God if we try he honors that and he grows us to be more like him because we have all obtained a faith that is on equal standing so with that you need to understand there is nothing preventing you from walking in obedience and faith but yourself give me three more minutes I want to tell you about the gifts of Christ that's the last thing Uh, Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There are three gifts that only Christ can give the Christian, and they cannot be found anywhere else, no matter where you try, and they are mentioned in this text. Three gifts that are given to you through Christ and cannot be found anywhere else. The first is his righteousness. His righteousness. Excuse me. It is a gift that is only given by him, Cannot be found anywhere else. Cannot be uh, replicated, reproduced, or or otherwise. It sounds like one of those disclaimers at the end of a commercial or something. It cannot be reproduced. It cannot be produced by you. His righteousness. The other is grace. You can never know true grace except through Christ. All other grace is sort of grace with strings attached. Even if you don't, even if it doesn't mean to be. And the third, and this is most important, to being able to consistently live. Um, with Christ is peace, peace, not only peace, the peace of God, but peace with God. These are three gifts, gifts that cannot be get, uh, earned or get, uh, received any other way, or getting, if you're a little southern, any other way but through Jesus Christ. second Corinthians 5:21 says, "For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become. What do you remember? the righteousness of God. We might become that because he was made sin who knew no sin. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us not because of works of righteousness done by us, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. If there is any goodness of man, if man can do any right, can know any truth, it is through Jesus Christ alone. He gives us his righteousness this is called imputed righteousness he gives us grace grace is god's unmerited favor it is his unearned favor and first peter P- peter calls god the god of all grace john 1:16 says from his fullness we have received grace upon grace The first step when you learn the truth about Jesus is to turn from your sin, to trust him and to follow him. And the next step, and this continues throughout the rest of your life, is to remind yourself that this is neither earned nor deserved, but it is all about grace. In keeping with his character, to the glory of the Father, And his love for us. He has saved us. He has chosen us. And he has kept us in every way. And that is a gift of grace. Righteousness is a gift that only can come from Christ. Grace is a gift that can only come from Christ. And peace is a gift that can only come from Christ. When his righteousness abounds... When his grace abounds in our minds, our hearts, our lives, peace abounds. No other person, whether claiming to be a Christian or not, will have peace outside of trusting in Christ's righteousness and his grace. But when we trust in Christ for both, we will abound in all of them. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, Peter also emphasizes something that is very important here. He mentions it 15 times in 2 Peter in some way, shape, or form. The grace and peace, how is grace and peace multiplied? First, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We get it. How is it multiplied? By the knowledge of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something very clear. And I wish I had spent the entire sermon on it, but I've got one minute to give it to you. Knowledge and love are never separated from each other in the scriptures. The head and the heart are never separated from each other. When people try to tell you God is love, God is forgiveness, God is, God is all of these gushy things, it's true. But when they separate it from the knowledge of who God actually is, it is a problem and it is a, it is a counterfeit form of Christianity. The Bible never separates the love of God with the character of God. And he says, in order to grow in grace and in order to grow in peace, you must grow in the knowledge of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I believe that the way that grace and peace are primarily uh, grown and harbored in your life is through a growing of the knowledge of Jesus. You cannot stop learning. You cannot stop learning. We see it with Solomon because we've studied through Ecclesiastes and we know the Bible. We see it in friends and family. We see friends and family who start off off so well, who are leaders in the church, who are mentors to many, who are wise beyond their years, and yet it slips away. And you look at them down the road, and you think this is just a shell of the person that they used to be. Because wisdom is fleeting. Because wisdom and knowledge are something that must be uh, must be pursued for the rest of your life as a believer. We must grow in grace. We must grow in peace. And I'm 100% sure that the way we primarily do that is by growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it'll be super important coming up because Peter is saying, hey, there's some people in here that are saying some things that definitely don't jive with what the gospel that we gave you. And like, I feel like you probably should have recognized that before now, but just in case you didn't recognize that, I'm gonna give you this truth. The reason the truth, the knowledge part is so important to Peter throughout this is because it is necessary to see truth in all forms. Truth against false teachers, truth in our lives when we need to hear it, when we're straying away, and truth that we can give to others to help them grow in grace and peace also. Pray with me today. Lord, you are good. You are unlike any other. You are preeminent in everything. You are the first and the last. You are in all things. All things work through you, and you are before all things. We trust in you. Help us to grow through your righteousness. Help us to grow in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, we praise you, we thank you for today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.